0: Welcome to the Action Catalyst, where we share inspiration and insights to help you get moving, overcome mediocrity, and move toward achieving your goals in life. From Nashville, Tennessee, this is Dan Moore, your host, partner with Southwestern Consulting and president of Southwestern Advantage. Are you interested in advertising with the Action Catalyst? Our listeners could be hearing about your brand right here, right now. For details, shoot us an email at info at theactioncatalyst.com. Welcome to today's version of the Action Catalyst. This is Dan Moore, and of all the great guests that I've had the opportunity to spend time with, today is the most special. The reason that I'm in the business community started some 45 years ago when this individual approached me. I was sitting at a table in a dining hall at Harvard University, and he walked up and said, excuse me, are you a freshman? And I nodded and he said, well, I'm a senior mind if I join you. And that was my introduction to the world of Southwestern Advantage where I've been blessed to spend my entire career. He's originally from Music City from Detroit and has spent his entire career after Harvard Business School working in the field of bonds and particularly high yield bonds. He is currently the chief investment officer of Lehman, Livian and Fritzen Advisors in New York. After getting his history degree from Harvard and his MBA, He went on to work with a number of firms in Wall Street, including at one point being the director of high-yield research globally for Merrill Lynch. He has served as a governor of the Association for Investment Management and Research, which is now called the CFA Institute, a director of the New York Society of Security and Analysts, and the Financial Management Association named him the Financial Executive of the Year. He became the youngest person ever inducted into the Fixed Income Analyst Society Hall of Fame. He is one of the most widely published authors in finance, has authored five books, and his textbook on financial statement analysis, now in its fifth printing, has been called one of the most useful investment books ever. The Boston Globe said that his book called Unwarranted Intrusions, The Case Against Government Invention in the Marketplace, should be shortlisted among the best business books of the decade. But what I remember most is the wisdom that he shared when we were roommates together in San Antonio, Texas, the life advice, the career advice, and the ongoing enduring friendship that we have. He is married to Elaine Sissman and have two wonderful grown adult, diversely talented children. So Marty, welcome to the Action Catalyst.
1: Really great to be here, Dan.
0: This is exciting times. It's also kind of fun to tell you that we now have two children in the Detroit area. So how's that for a connection back?
1: Oh, that's terrific. I hope you uh, got a chance to, to
0: see them when I'm back there. You're absolutely right. Well, Marty, your, your career has been so stellar, but I know that many of the lessons started even before you went off to college. I wonder if you could just share with our listeners some of the key pivot points, key influences, uh, direction settings that happened as you progressed up through your life uh, thus far.
1: Well, I think that one of the uh, important lessons I learned early on was uh, the benefit of not knowing what you cannot accomplish. And this was driven home when I was uh, motivated by some events uh, related to our local football team in Detroit to write a letter to the uh, sports editor of the uh, Detroit Free Press. He had a column that ran on Fridays with uh, some humorous uh, uh, letters and his responses to them and some more serious things. And I wrote a very earnest letter to him. Uh, This was at the age of 11. And he, uh, I'm I'm pretty sure didn't realize quite how young I was, but published it and gave a a respectful response to it. And uh, I know my parents, friends were uh, kind of stunned to see that and thought they must have ghosted the letter for me. But uh, no, they told him that I had written it. And uh, uh, I I didn't know that at age 11, you weren't supposed to got a letter published in the newspapers. that was a big thrill for me, of course, uh, just getting my name in the paper like that. But um, uh, I think that that was a lesson that stood me in good stead later on. I I, I was fortunate to go to Harvard, as uh, you mentioned, Dan. uh, My high school was not really uh, anything like a feeder school for the Ivy League. We did have uh, one student, an older brother, one of my classmates who had gone to Harvard. And it was said that there had once been a student from our school who went to brown but it was not uh the normal thing to apply to ivy league schools but again uh, I, you know, I didn't know that it, it, that wasn't something you could do and uh very fortunately was accepted there uh so that that was a very positive lesson another one that was a little tougher lesson but uh, very important was that uh around the same age i was in the uh, uh spelling bee and it, it happened to have some uh, talent in that area, and uh, won the uh, grade in the uh, the school spelling bee, and then went on to the district, after which the next stop was uh, the state capitol. So I was uh, going in with high hopes and uh, worked very hard at it. Uh, my mother and my aunt drilled me in uh, spelling words, and to the such a point that I got hoarse, I was afraid I wouldn't be able to compete. because. I would have lost my voice. So I felt I'd uh, put in a lot of effort on it and uh, came into it, uh, did very well, came down to the last two of us. And then uh, a girl who uh, had uh, also worked very hard uh, beat me and uh, it drove uh, home the lesson that uh, just have to work harder because I think that's what she did. I don't think she was naturally more talented gifted in the area uh but it it showed that uh you just have to put in that additional effort and uh
0: that that certainly helped me a lot do you remember what word you missed marty
1: uh yeah embarrassingly the word was uh nuptials which wasn't too familiar to me but you're referring to uh, weddings and somehow uh i i don't mean to make an excuse but as the uh Uh, the judge gave me the word, it really sounded to me more like nuptials uh, with a U rather than N-U-P-T-I-A-L-S. And uh, so uh, it was just a matter, I think, of uh, my vocabulary being more limited than it it was at a later age. (laughs) Uh, So uh, yeah, those, uh, uh, I I do remember winning uh, one of those uh, Bs on the word unnecessary. Uh, So uh, we were not quite at the level that you see nowadays where they have some uh, very obscure words that wind up being the winning words in the uh, national spelling bee that takes place in Washington. Uh, So the uh,
0: level of competition has uh, definitely escalated a lot since my time. Uh, I think that's awesome. Well, I know when you were at Harvard, you uh, you got recruited also to sell books for Southwestern and you spent five summers selling and building organizations there. Um, Can you share a little bit about Perhaps the influence that that entire experience had on had on you in the direction setting because you were a history major, as I recall, weren't you?
1: That's right, and uh, I I think that history was a great discipline. Uh, it's it's helped me a lot uh, later on uh, professionally. Aside from just the uh, I think the, the value of knowing history, but. Uh, there has been some uh, practical due to it. Uh, I, I remember when I started as an analyst, I mean, I had worked uh, originally as a bond trader. But when I got into analysis, uh, there was a uh, the, uh, guy I was reporting to who was about a decade older to, than I was. And I realized he had been through uh, more cycles in the market. And uh, that was just a benefit. You know, Having that perspective was something that I couldn't replicate uh, except through the passage of time. Uh, other than learning, studying what had happened, uh, asking questions. And, uh, you know, I th- people, someone just recently mentioned that he saw a value in some of the work I'm doing currently uh, just because of the historical perspective. But uh, working for Southwestern uh, really changed my direction. I uh, had been thinking of going on to law school, but I realized that in business, what was really exciting about it was that There weren't any answers. There wasn't a constitution or uh, common law or anything like that. Not to take anything away from the legal profession. I have great respect for uh, uh, attorneys that I know. But I I found that what appealed to me more was the idea of trying to figure it out. Saying, "Well, here is the goal. You're trying to uh, be successful, earn a profit in a business, uh, and uh, you have to figure out." And the 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 landscape is always changing, and uh, that was certainly the experience. As much as we got direction, uh, we had very good, uh, excellent sales training at Southwestern Company, and they prepared us for everything they could think of. But I found that uh, when you got to the customer's home, uh, once in a while, they were going to come up with an objection (laughs) that you just had not heard, that no one had thought of putting into the sales school. So you really had to think on your feet and, uh, work with the, uh, clients and, uh, the prospective, uh, customers. And, uh, so I, I, I that was really exciting to me.
0: Oh, I think that's phenomenal. So you sold through your undergraduate years. And then I remember you went off to Harvard business school, which in itself was a very rare achievement getting accepted without what they might call outside work experience.
1: Yeah, yeah. They, they did uh, consider what I had done with Southwestern in the summers, and then working, recruiting during the term time as equivalent to an, at least a couple of years of full-time work experience.
0: Which, which is amazing. So, how did it then lead you to Wall Street?
1: Well, that was another uh, lesson that I learned, which is being open to suggestions. I, Wall Street was the furthest thing from my mind, uh, doing the case study method, at Harvard Business School, we studied uh, experiences in various industries. Uh, The case would typically put you in the role of uh, the CEO of the company or someone with responsibility within that company for a particular business area, and you were presented with a problem and had to come up with your solution to it. And a lot of those cases, uh, we uh, from manufacturing industries, uh, basic industry and uh, and that really appealed to me. I like the idea that particularly in the uh, the uh, forest products and paper industry, uh, it was a, a sort of a decentralized kind of industry. so within a reasonably short period of time, you could potentially become the manager of a plant that was responsible for sales in a region. Uh, Perhaps it was on the order of $10 million, which was a big number in those days. And so it was uh, really getting that shot at general management. So that was really what I was thinking of and interviewed with some companies, but I got an invitation to interview based really on the sales experience that I had uh, from a company uh, called Mitchell Hutchins, uh, which is a very high quality company uh sort of a uh, kind of firm that no longer exists but uh they call it a boutique research firm and they were looking to expand their bond business and thought bringing someone in with some sales experience would be a benefit to that and i uh, was really going to blow off the interview because it was so far from what i was thinking but one of my cl- uh, classmates fortunately said to me well why don't you go check it out you never really know and uh, sure i'm sure glad that i listened to that advice because when i got there i i encountered a very different experience from what I had expected uh, on, on Wall Street, a very different kind of environment, very um, uh, stimulating, uh, a lot of uh, really uh, smart people, people that I liked, and uh, I really had a great experience there in the first few years on the street. So I think being open to ideas that may be very different from what you've been thinking is uh, so important to uh, success in business, and it certainly worked out for me a, a number of times.
0: Mm-hmm. So you started with Miller Hutchins, and then what, what advice and other inputs caused you to move in the direction of doing more writing, publishing, uh, the things that that really you're very well known for?
1: Well, the fellow who uh, originally hired me at Mitchell Hutchins, uh, th- as that firm merged into Payne Weber, uh, our group went in a different direction, but uh, Uh, this, his name was uh, Jack Rifkin, uh, thought that I had some good analytical experiences. One thing I did on the side while I was trading corporate bonds is we used to put out a little weekly report on what was going on in the uh, corporate bond market. And I was given the responsibility of doing that. And I think he was uh, impressed enough by that to say, well, you know, you really ought to think about coming here to Payne-Weber to be an analyst because they had just had uh, desertion uh, by six analysts. And uh, unfortunately, uh, given the conditions at the time, they were only able to hire one to replace them. So I wound up getting that job. And uh, boy, that was really a learning experience because I had a wide, a very large list of companies to follow and had to be very well organized about it. Uh, so the, just that idea of going into analysis, which is not something I had thought about. I hadn't really done a lot of work in that area Uh, of securities analysis um, uh, beyond some very basic uh, accounting and such at uh, business school. So I hadn't really been thinking of that direction, but I think Jack had good instincts about that and wound up being a good match for me. Uh, While I was doing that, uh, I started to, uh, in addition to the company related analysis, started doing some more industry related and more general type of work to, supplement what I was doing uh, in my uh, company coverage. And uh, uh, head of research at another firm who I'd gotten to know through the Fixed Income Analyst Society, which uh, had included analysts from various companies. Uh, His name is Dick Wilson. And he said to me, you know, some of this work you're doing really could be publishable in journals, which was very far from anything that I had considered. And uh, But I followed his advice and started to get some things published. And that led to uh, my being asked to write a book on financial statement analysis. And uh, so uh, while it's great to plan and uh, uh, think about where you're going, uh, it's also important to be open to ideas that uh, you you hadn't thought about.
0: We use the term coachability and you have always exemplified that. (laughs) That's awesome. Now, I also know that that you have a strong sense of not only analytical ability, but also trusting your instincts. Uh, can you share some examples of, uh, of how that's been important throughout your life?
1: Well, I think the best example of that really has been that uh, I my wife, Elaine, and I got engaged 10 weeks after we met. Uh, I was really dragging my feet a little bit, but I figured since she was in New York uh, where I live, uh, was living at the time and still we still live. Uh, I I had at least till the end of the summer before I had to really uh, commit, Uh, but uh, I, I, you know, I didn't have any uh, really rational basis of saying, yes, this is the uh, perfect mate for me, but, uh, uh, and I tell young people nowadays that, uh, you know, we got engaged after 10 weeks and sometimes their eyes pop out of their head uh, because that isn't, uh, I think, the typical experience nowadays, but uh, it certainly was the right uh, move we've uh, been married now for 37 years and uh, uh i i don't think i i'm pretty sure i couldn't have found a, a better uh better wife uh someone who's really been more uh, helpful to me and uh that we've enjoyed a lot of good times together um the uh other thing that i i think is is important um or is an example of uh your uh, instincts is that um, you know there are times when uh, you know, facing a business decision, you really uh, can go through all the Harvard <laughs> Business School methods, uh, do all the analysis, come up with all the pros and cons. But in the end, uh, a lot of these problems are just too complex to completely reduce to numbers, and uh, and you you have to go with your instincts about it um I, I think one uh, great example uh was that uh, we when i uh, headed the high yield research area at Merrill Lynch we had support analysts for our senior analysts and the, the senior analysts uh, generally wanted someone uh with the equivalent of a cpa who could just do a lot of number crunching and uh you know and that was important to be able to have those skills but we had a candidate who came in had uh Liberal arts background and undergraduate, you know, knew something about finance, but didn't have on uh, paper all the skills that uh, the senior analyst wanted. But I just had a, a sense about this fellow and uh, I and I sort of leaned on the senior analyst and said, I, I think we really should hire this guy. Um, uh, his name is Adam he has gone on to a very successful career ultimately as a hedge fund manager. Uh, but uh after working as a support analyst for us uh was hired by a hedge fund to be their sole credit analyst and uh did extremely well and i, I think just had had what it uh took and it wasn't something that i could uh quantify in any way but you know just had a sense uh, uh that he he was the right guy and he he would really uh go beyond um you know Once he got those basic skills down, he would really be able to contribute more than other candidates we were seeing. And um, so it was a gut feel, but uh, really turned out to be one of the best hires we ever made.
0: That's great. So it's a combination of head and heart in making some of those key business decisions. I think that's awesome. You have been in uh, arguably the most turbulent industry sector for 40 some years now, Marty the world of finance. In fact, a couple of the companies that you mentioned, uh, were well known when I was growing up. They're, they're not known at all anymore because of mergers, acquisitions, uh, people folding, going out of business, et cetera. Can you share your insights on dealing with adversity, dealing with setbacks, the, the brick walls that sometimes appear to be insurmountable? Because this is so important to all of us and particularly your experiences will shed a lot of light.
1: Yeah. If you work in the finance area, you're going to, uh, experience those uh, ups and downs, and as I say, brick walls. I think a good metaphor for some of the experiences that uh, you'll run into. Uh, and we had a n- near-death experience in the high yield bond market in 1990. It was uh, a fairly new market area uh, at that time, and uh, there uh, it was very closely tied to the private equity business leverage buyouts. Uh, those came a big bust. Uh, there was a, a major scandal uh, involved in the market and uh, this uh, sector of the market was blamed, I think somewhat unfairly, for the collapse of the savings and loan industry. This is kind of ancient history by this time, but I can tell you I was at a uh, lunch counter Uh, on a business trip and I happened to strike up a conversation with a fellow who was uh, uh, having lunch there too. And he asked me what I did. And I explained that I was uh, an analyst in the high yield bond area. And he said, there isn't any high yield bond market anymore. (laughs) And and it really was pretty much given up for debt. uh, We had a meeting at uh, Merrill Lynch at the time and talked about the future of the sector, the market. And I was the great optimist in the group who thought that one day the uh, underwriting volume, uh, the you know, volume of issuance of new high yield bonds would get back to as much as ten billion dollars a year, and I was considered kind of a crazy optimist. Uh, now, typically runs two or three hundred billion dollars a year uh, as a routine matter, but uh, to give you an idea of how uh, pessimistic people really were at that point, so. Um, my um, response to that was to say we've lost a lot of credibility, not because anything that I or people in my group had done, but there was a, a great deal of skepticism, cynicism, and you know, not uh, at all unjustified uh, because of some of the you know, hanky panky that had gone on. So I said, well, what we really need to do is to remember what we learned about fourth grade, which was show your work, and you know, I was do the analysis go through step by step if you make any assumptions lay those out and then the worst anyone can say about our analysis is that they disagree with one of our assumptions and therefore they don't agree with the conclusion that we come to but they have to concede that this was a good faith effort to get to the right answer and that was tremendously valuable to me personally and to our group i think we got a lot of uh, credibility as a result of that people said that yes uh, we're going through some tough times but here's some credible research it's not just an attempt to unload the uh, inventory that they're unable to sell anywhere else uh and uh, i i you know the uh, reputation that uh, i was able to build as a result of that was a great uh, benefit to me um you know Uh, a a decade later when there was a contraction in in the business, and I was uh, let go by Merrill Lynch. uh, despite uh, I like to say it was my award for being named the uh, top high-yield bond strategist uh, nine years in a row in the institutional investor uh, survey. But yeah, this is a a tough business. But I was able to land on my feet uh, really, I think, only because there were investors out there who had been customers of ours at Merrill Lynch who uh, saw value in what I was doing and uh, were willing to continue to support me as I went in and launched at that point an independent research business. Uh, So having kept uh, my mind on that goal of how can we provide service to those customers uh, over and above any um, short-term objectives we have in the business here, let's build those long-term relationships by, Uh, Showing that we really are trying to help them do their jobs as uh, effectively as as possible.
0: So, a combination of really an early foray into business transparency, the whole idea of show your work, which lets you pull skeptics back into the camp of people that said, well, at least this is credible work, and then to continue to expand and expand and expand. And then abruptly, and I was actually with you when that whole thing was happening at Merrill Lynch, um, more than landing on your feet. And to me, it was the relationship that you'd built with clients, the credibility that you had established, and the fact that just because this particular company maybe didn't show the best judgment, it didn't mean that other companies would wouldn't so uh, I thought that was awesome
1: yeah well i you know, I can't fault the business decisions i've never, I've had some ups and downs, uh, and uh putting myself in the shoes of those managers and uh, various firms that I've been at uh you know i I'm not sure I would have come down. Differently, and uh, what's important is not the uh, fate of one individual, but uh, really the uh, the good of the company, the employees, the customers, the shareholders. Uh, so I, uh, yeah, I I don't fault anyone for any business decision, regardless how it's worked out for me. But I think it is important for anyone who's listening, who's in a career, to think about your brand, uh, what you represent, and what value you can bring in or out of your company. And uh, as a long-term insurance policy, building up that brand is I think the, the most valuable uh, thing you can do for yourself.
0: Well, for many people, that would have been a career-ending move when being let go by a firm like Merrill Lynch, but clearly you're not most people, and that's an exciting lesson. In terms of uh, your, your general approach to, to business problem-solving... well. Marty, when you're faced with a situation that is is really seems intractable, and it may be a personnel issue, it may be a market issue, it may be a cash flow issue, is there a sort of a, a series of steps or methodology or above all your mental frame of mind when you're approaching the unknown that way?
1: Yeah, I think that uh, looking at it as a problem to be solved is uh, really the uh, right mindset to go in. To it with. Uh, it, it may be a pretty uh, daunting prospect that you're facing, but uh, it, it's never a unique situation. I mean, uh, particular circumstances are uh, not something that someone else has encountered, but there are models. And that you know, I think the case study method, I was fortunate to uh, get that grounding in business school and you know, that sort of a natural way that I think about it as a result of that and say, well, what analogies are there uh, out there that we can look at. And then um, really uh, enlisting the help of uh, smarter people. I mean, I've had to deal with some issues in technology that are far beyond my uh, knowledge. Uh, But uh, it it, it turns out often I find that it's, it's really a matter of getting people to work together to communicate uh, they may be coming from uh, different kinds of cultures uh, and they may not immediately be that receptive. There may be some issues of rivalry uh that uh are getting in the way and uh, so understanding the people a lot of th- these problems are really too big to solve for yourself i uh encountered a number of things at Merrill Lynch that uh you know involved other parts of the firm, people with professional expertise that I lacked but Sort of getting uh, to the, uh, those people, finding out who they were, uh, at least being able to explain the problem, and then uh, sitting down, uh, working with them, getting people talking. You know, solutions do emerge from that. I think if you try to take it on all by yourself, uh, often it's it is overwhelming and uh, it, hard to move forward on it because you're just so. Uh, preoccupied with the uh the difficulties that uh, are being presented to you right at the moment uh, it's, it takes some patience it takes um uh some calm effort and uh a willingness to dig in a little more than maybe you had expected to get more into the weeds as they say on some of these problems but uh uh to to get to a point where uh, you you really have a grasp on what needs to be done and then you can find the uh, right people who have the right expertise to
0: get it done. Well, and it's also been said that the right people with the right expertise is a form of going to business school without going to business school.
1: Yeah. It's uh, amazing what you can learn. And uh, it, it may be from, uh, you know, people that uh, you, you never expect, uh, you know, to have. So it's, it's very, very important to keep an open mind. I, I, when I started on wall street, one thing that I didn't like about, it, although it was a great experience in many ways was that they had the term producer and that referred exclusively to traders and salespeople. And I was a trader at that point. So I didn't feel uh, excluded, but I, I really felt that there were other people in the firm doing all sorts of things. I, uh, uh, you know, just, um, whether in the financial area, in the, the accounting, um, uh, even uh, people, I, w- there was a d- department before the days of uh, PowerPoint, And uh, you know, we had a, a team of people who would create graphs to, for the uh, analyst research reports and for the work that I did, uh, putting out that little uh, weekly commentary on the corporate bond market, I uh, enlisted their help and I, I needed them. So I, I really felt that everyone in the company was a producer and uh, it, it was the wrong way of thinking about it of uh, really creating those separate classes, because uh, again, when you run into a problem, uh, anybody in that company can be part of the solution, but you have to be uh, open to the idea that, uh, you know, there is some uh, knowledge uh, that's out there and, and people they hadn't even uh, considered as, a potentially part of the solution.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, on the people front, Marty, you've been in an industry that is, of course, so well known and so often caricatured, unfortunately, for the behavior of some individuals that are in it. How do you keep your equilibrium around people that are immensely powerful financially and personality wise? Keep your equilibrium, keep your sense of humor, keep your perspective, um, and keep your self-confidence when some very powerful people may be trying to rip it away
1: you have to uh stay confident in what you do know uh don't sell yourself short on that uh, i have had situations where uh, there was an analytical issue uh ultimately um and i was confident that i had the facts right and uh you know just had to uh, be tactful about it but stand my ground One of my favorite incidents was uh, a a, a guy came to me and said, "Hey Marty, can you do a study to show that?" I said, "Hold it right there. (laughs) I don't know what it's going to show until I do the study, and uh, you may not be happy with the result. But uh, it's an excellent question, and I'll certainly take a look at it. But I I can't prejudge the outcome." And that uh, was uh, part of a larger principle of you know, playing it straight, saying we're going to let the uh, facts lead us to the right conclusion, and uh, it unquestionably helped us. As I uh, came up with some findings that sometimes were not all that helpful, frankly, to uh, uh, our traders or salespeople. Uh, it may have uh, differed from the way they viewed the market, but uh, when. Uh, I remember one time I, I did a study that uh, was very helpful uh, to uh, Merrill Lynch from a business standpoint, but it was because the facts were there. It had to do with uh, how bonds were priced and uh, how that related to who the firm was, which firm was underwriting those bonds. And uh, it, uh, Merrill Lynch was in uh, the category that actually uh, wound up uh, being favored in that analysis. but not because that's what I set out to do, that's what the numbers said. And when, you know, I think if uh, any other firm had published those results, it would have been met with great skepticism because it would have been presumed that they were trying to uh, rig the thing to come out in favor of uh, their firm. But I think we had established that credibility uh, by that point that people said, yeah, that's a good finding. And that study which was published uh, probably 25 years ago, now I've seen uh, cited, in uh things as far afield as the uh, the Greek shipping industry. Uh so it, it had some influence, on you know, the methodology that I developed there. And uh so I I again I think that uh having the courage of your convictions is uh is is the, the most important fact and uh, no matter who uh you're going up with who may be on the other side uh you, you can uh get get them on the right side, ultimately if you, know, you stick to your guns.
0: Uh, I think that's awesome uh, Marty. I guess I'd like to wrap if you could could finish up by just sharing the importance of a sense of humor and how you maintain yours i I've read a lot of your writings that always have immense uh, immensely i don't, don't want to say clever, I want to say deeply imbued sense of humor um, your your sense of being bemused by the world around us. Uh, some of your light verse has been published in the Wall Street Journal and other places. Uh, talk to us about humor and how you how you maintain yours and, and its importance.
1: Well, it's a subject that I love uh, to talk about with Gil on for quite a while. I was fortunate to be brought up in an environment of humor. My father, uh, his father were excellent uh, storytellers. and. Uh, not so much telling jokes, but just sort of spinning stories and, uh, seeing the lighter side of things, uh, you know, even when there was a dark side to it, uh, and, uh, some problems that my father encountered in business, but he was able to see the light side of, uh, as well. And, uh, so, uh, as again, I was very fortunate to be exposed to that early on and, uh, it, I, I think that uh, you can get uh, uh, down on things. I, I think I've uh, one area that I've uh, found it very helpful to maintain a sense of humor is that I've been in some large organizations, and uh, there is a certain amount of bureaucracy that comes into it, some unfortunate mindsets that develop uh, that really get in the way of getting things done, uh, and uh, you know you can just get frustrated and angry and bitter about that. Uh, or you can maintain a sense of humor and say, well, all right, uh, this is the environment we're working in. But within that, we can make some progress. We can get things done that we need to do. Um, but uh, it's I think it's hard to get to that point if you're just uh, depressed about things and not, uh, not seeing the light side of things. Um, and it with the markets ups and downs it's uh it's very important uh to see the humor and uh i think it's also very good for morale within an organization uh, for people to know that uh within the bounds of good taste and uh you know uh, not uh, belittling people uh that it's it's okay to uh be uh be humorous to uh, make a a wisecrack at uh, the appropriate time. And uh, it it really can defuse uh, situations otherwise uh, very tense. So I I just put tremendous value on it. I think it uh, should get probably more attention than it does in some of the uh, uh, how-to books about management. I I just think it's it's really critical to uh, success of an organization.
0: Well, it's amazing. I'm going to share two uh, Fritzenisms that you shared with me back in 1974. Everybody, Marty said this one time. He said, in God we trust, all others should pay cash. (laughs) And that was very powerful. And the other thing you shared was uh, cash doesn't bounce. (laughs) So those were early business lessons for a political science major, which I appreciated. (laughs) Uh, Marty, time goes so quickly with you. Uh, I'm grateful for the lessons that you've shared, for the kind of family man that you are, for the example that you are in the business community, and for the ongoing mentorship that I appreciate and receive from you. So on behalf of all of our listeners and the Action Catalyst, thank you so much for what you do and for who you are and for being our guest today.
1: Thank you for this opportunity and really great to talk to you as always. Sounds great.
0: Thank you so much, Marty. What a personally wonderful opportunity that was to be able to spend time with the individual that brought me into the business community. One of the many memories that I have about Marty is that he always practiced leadership by example. Uh, When you're selling books door to door, there's not a lot that's glamorous about it. There's an awful lot of frustration. There's a lot of people that just by default are rejecting of anybody that knocks on their door and Marty invariably showed how it's meant to be done by keeping the right attitude, by keeping the right sense of humor and above all, by modeling the schedule in every respect. So to see how his career has unfolded and the massive impact that he's had in the world of high finance is beyond my comprehension, frankly. But to see that happen and to be able to hear those lessons are so really key. A couple of the things that hit me very hard and what Marty was sharing was his own resiliency. You know, to be nine years in a row, the top financial analyst and named to the Hall of Fame over and over and over, and then to be let go in a business turndown. And to be able to bounce back from that it's so easy to look at people that are on wall street and say well they don't deal with any of the issues that everybody else deals with well that's absolutely not true and what marty said is that because he had developed a body of work and a reputation as a credible reliable honest person and had built relationships with people that enabled him to land on his feet so i think the real lesson there is that our reputations are important and what we do and what we work and how we work and the integrity with which we work such a difference as we move forward into other things that want to happen throughout our lives he developed a a set of principles to help him through that one was the early experience in transparency uh, the idea of show your work we all know that there are business deals that all look good on the surface but underneath they're not good there have been major scandals that continue to rock the world when it comes to investments but marty's focus on uh, let's just open everything up show our methodology show our analysis So that transparency is what helps to lead to greater loyalty and lead to greater sense that people are going to be able to depend upon what you do Uh, in terms of dealing with strong people i wrote down this quote from marty stay confident in what you do know there's a lot of unknowns in the world but there's a lot that we do know so stay confident in that deal with people always respectfully and always with appreciation but knowing when something has to be done right Uh, he's a believer in enlisting the help in smarter people and above all understanding human nature and that has come from a lifetime of of studying that being being somebody that is aware of humans instincts and their tendencies Uh, it's such a key thing i guess the other thing that really hits me is the importance of individual motivation marty has always believed in a sense of humor he's always believed in hard work he's always believed in putting one foot in front of the other even in the face of somewhat insurmountable obstacle i can also say that marty is a real believer in the most important things in life, uh, that his family is most important to him, his faith, and the business things that happen are, are, are somewhat less important, although they're all important. And so his ability to stay focused on the main thing, to be principle-centered in what he does, uh, he spends time with uh, not-for-profit organizations, he spends time encouraging people, uh, he's given countless amounts of advice at no charge to individuals that are trying to figure out if they want to be in Wall Street, how to make that work for them. He's been an informal and a formal mentor so many times. And so it's those instincts and that confidence that make a difference. Uh, What I'll always appreciate about Marty is that he said to me when I was 18 years old, I will always believe in you and in what you can become. And then because he modeled the right behaviors, it was a credible source. So he shared with me, I will always believe in you and what you can become. And he did believe in me. And that didn't mean that he just forgave any mistakes that I made. He always believed I could become better. And I give him an enormous amount of credit for teaching me how to be more disciplined, teaching me how to be more goal-oriented, and above all, to not get complacent because that's such an easy thing for people to do. So many, many appreciations that go my way to Marty Fritzen. Uh, If you're interested in reading about finance, uh, he's got a, a very accessible book that's called Investment Illusions. Very, very powerful. And there's several others you can find uh, on Amazon. So on behalf of all of us, I want to thank Marty Fridson for spending that time with us. Encourage us to put these lessons to work as best we can. And I look forward to hearing and seeing more in the future. Until next time, it's Dan Moore. Thank you.